right, take your seats, everyone. This time we're talking about attribution bias. So take your seats, please. Thanks. Welcome to the Change Academy podcast, a show for people who want to change their habits and their lifestyle by making well-informed decisions, not by employing any emotional knee-jerk reactions. <laughs> My name is Brock Armstrong. And I'm Monica Reinagel. And this week, we're talking about attribution bias. And mm. this was somewhat of a new concept to me. Brock actually um, brought this to my attention and suggested it as a as a subject for our episode today. And the more I've learned about it, the more I am on board with that. <laughs> this is a great idea. Right? Yeah. So attribution bias can be defined like this. It's when people misattribute the influence of a temporary state to a stable quality of the consumption good. <laughs> And if that sounds like it was written by an academic, it's because it was. It was. I got that definition from Kareem Hagag. He was writing in a journal called The Review of Economic Studies in 2019. So what they're really talking about here, here's an example that he gives. If you sample a new type of beverage, a new soda or something, how hot and how thirsty you happen to be when you first try that beverage will significantly influence your later willingness to have that again in the future. Independent of how much you actually enjoyed it, you misattribute the influence of that temporary state of hotness or thirstiness to a stable quality, namely the desirability of that consumption good, to of that beverage. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So... The concept seems kind of obvious, uh, like many good ideas are once you point them out. But this type of bias is actually playing out silently in our everyday lives and choices and decisions all the time. And we want to suggest you ignore attribution bias at your peril. Right. And actually, if you go and Google attribution bias, you'll see that there's several different sort of threads of it or different versions of it. And for our purposes here on the Change Academy podcast right here, right now, the aspect of attribution bias that we want to focus on is the cognitive process that might lead us to make errors or assumptions when we're trying to find reasons for our own behaviors or our own choices. And when you say find reasons, do you mean rationalize? <laughs> Right. Rationalize our behaviors and our choices as we often do. Right. Now, a, an interesting example of exactly how this can play out was actually studied at a U.S. military academy. And they looked at whether the time of day that a class occurs, whether that could influence whether a student chose that subject as their major or not. Now, the researchers looked at whether the students might attribute their discomfort or their sleepiness or whatever it is to the subject matter instead of the time of day that the class was happening. Now, this is important because the student may end up choosing a completely different educational path that could lead to a completely different potential career because they had a class at 8 a.m., not because they didn't have the aptitude or the enthusiasm for that information. Okay, I just want to pause for a second here, because when you first started to explain this, I thought you meant that kids might choose what to study based on what time of day it was offered. But I think you're saying that they didn't have any choice. They had to go to that class. It was assigned to them at eight o'clock. But then their subsequent interest or enthusiasm for that topic may have been determined by the hour of the day. Exactly. 
Okay, yeah. got it. And the interesting thing is, I mean, if we sort of flip that idea on its head, let's say the kids did choose to take the the class at at 8 a.m. because they're morning people and they feel like that's a perfectly reasonable time to be sitting in class. Said no kid ever. <laughs> yes, I'm a morning person. And I still wouldn't have said that. But let's say that student is an auditory learner. And I bring that up because that's exactly who I am. I'm an auditory learner rather than someone who learns really well from reading books or staring at PowerPoint slides. So again, the subject matter could be super compelling and super relevant for that person. But this time, the style of teaching didn't align with that student. So you can see how there are all these different things that we could potentially miss. And there are several potential hidden factors at play here. And misattribution could greatly change the trajectory of a student's life. Yeah, I'm thinking of people that I've known who chose their careers largely because they had one charismatic professor mm -hmm. in, or may have been a high school teacher that just so communicated or so infused the subject with enthusiasm that people ended up choosing that as a career. And it really wasn't a, you know, a core affinity for that subject. It was really just the response to the, in this case, the teacher, the teaching style or the teaching personality. And it strikes me that the danger here is simply that we're not aware of those different layers of our affinity or our aversion that we need to be able to separate out or tease apart how much of this had to do with what we were actually talking about, how much of it had to do with the temperature in the room, mm -hmm. how much of it had to do with the scratchy wool sweater I was wearing. If we just kind of lump all that together, you're right, we can start making decisions <laughs> on some really shaky grounds just by the lack of awareness. Yeah, I'm sure people who've been listening to this podcast for a while are not surprised that it all begins with awareness. Like we really, right. a lot of the stuff that we talk about and a lot of the changes that we want people to make in their lives all start with just becoming aware. And this is just one of those, another one of those blind spots that people can really have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I stumbled across this whole attribution bias um, idea, the topic really resonated with me because, um, well, Monica and I run a weight loss program called Waylass, and the members of that group and people in my own life and people all over the place often refer to that familiar thing called comfort food. Now, the cognitive behavior therapy side of me has been looking and searching for a good reason for how and why reasonably otherwise sane people could believe that happiness or calm or comfort could actually reside in a particular food. And attribution bias explains it perfectly. It really explains exactly what I have been looking for. Because attribution, or I guess in this case, misattribution, can certainly influence what we learn to consider as comfort food and can even explain why we overeat that food in an attempt to recapture the original feeling we had when we first had it or when we were offered it. Oh, that's such an interesting insight that we associate a feeling that we want to recreate with the food that was present at the same time, right? And so not only do we turn to that food in order to recreate that feeling, but because it doesn't work, because it doesn't actually recreate that feeling, we keep going. 
and that that can drive that overeating. Interesting insight. Right. And if you're really interested in this subject matter in particular, you might want to go and check out Monica's other podcast, The Nutrition Diva, and look for an episode. I can't remember what it was called, but you interviewed Daria Rose and you started talking about that most complicated and misunderstood hormone dopamine. And I think if you listen to that, you'll really understand how this all sort of ties together. Right. Yeah. How those positive experiences somehow get linked in our brain to the comfort food, the quote unquote comfort food. And, you know, it's so ironic because of course, comfort food is often ends up being a source of great discomfort in our lives when we are misusing it. The discomfort food. Yeah. And when we mistakenly attribute that good feeling that we had during or after when we ate a particular food, to the food itself, it's no wonder that we go back to it again and again, trying to recapture that feeling. And then we eat more and more of that ice cream, that candy, that mashed potatoes, trying to achieve that good feeling that we remember, but we miss or we forget about the rest of the circumstance that contributed to that feel-good moment. Who was it that gave you the food? Where were you when you had it? How was the weather? What else was happening? What other emotions were at play? There's so many different things that could be happening. And this is kind of funny to think about, but I bet you can remember a time when a loved one said to you, here, eat this, it'll make you feel better, or let's go get a drink to relax or forget. Right. And it probably did work a little at least, but here's the thing. I want you to imagine that that person said, here, eat this, it'll make you feel better. And then they just turned around and they ran out of the room. (laughs) Now, they probably didn't. They probably sat and chatted with you and consoled you and empathized with you in some manner. But even if they did turn around and run out of the room, the sheer act of caring that they showed by even offering you that food or offering to go get a drink with you is where the magic began. But again, we mistakenly attribute it to the actual food or the actual drink, not to mention the assurance from the caregiver that this will help. So sort of um, some mind games at play there. But, of course, you can probably guess where we're going with this. When you eat that food in the future, you end up feeling empty, maybe over-consuming it in an attempt to elicit that original feeling. And it's really, it becomes, like Monica said, the discomfort food. Yeah, it's a great example of that misattribution or that attribution bias. It's also reminding me of a section in a book by Dr. Michelle Seeger. She was a guest on the podcast not that long ago, and she has a new book out called The Joy Choice. Mm. And she goes into a lot of great research on the brain and what drives cravings and temptation and aversion. And one of her insights is that that the remembered emotion that accompanies an early experience can really then create desire or aversion to those experiences in the future. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to find that passage because I want—I felt she'll say it better than I can. So let me just read you this brief excerpt from Michelle Seeger's The Joy Choice. And she's talking about temptation. When you feel tempted to eat another plate of pasta or you're tempted to skip your workout, That temptation is often related to memories of past experiences, both negative and positive. The cake is just a cake we want. The exercise is just an activity we might want to avoid. But below the surface of our minds, the cake and the exercise evoke specific memories. And they're accompanying feelings and images and sensations 
tempt us toward that tasty treat or away from the exercise that we're trying to avoid. So think about, that's the end of the quote. Now it's just me talking. (laughs) Um, Welcome back. Think about um, a gym class where you may have been shamed or embarrassed by a particularly sadistic gym coach, you know, because of your lack of physical ability, not that I'm bringing up any specific personal memory right now, Mm -hmm. and how that might influence your feelings about exercise in the future. That the aversion that you might feel, the reluctance, the avoidance to going to the gym, even though you know it's good for you, could be below the surface at a subconscious level, be dredging up those uncomfortable, unpleasant memories that were associated, that were attributed to physical activity in the past. And, you know, I have to say, I experienced that like in my 20s. I was not an exerciser and I didn't have a sadistic gym teacher, but I didn't love PE. You know, it was not my favorite time. I wasn't particularly athletic. I wasn't good at the games, you know, but it took years and years of positive experience with exercise and movement and activity to get to the point where now I'm a very enthusiastic and happy exerciser. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm never trying to avoid the gym. I'm always looking to make time for it, but it did take a lot of reconditioning or, you know, creating maybe a new attribution bias for physical movement for me. Mm. So just to suggest that, you know, maybe we can also turn this to our advantage. And actually Michelle does suggest that in her book, that um, first we can become aware of those negative associations that may be really propelling us toward or away from something, that we actually can create more positive memories and more positive associations with those things that we're trying to build into our lives as regular things. So it's not that constant process of trying to force ourselves to do something that we don't want to do. We've been having a conversation in the Wayless Members Forum just recently about collecting the evidence against having been or being someone who can't resist sugar. Yeah. And it's exactly that. Like you have these beliefs and you need to go and collect the the new stories or collect the new evidence that you have the ability to do something differently. And yeah, that remembered emotion, that whole idea of remembered emotion, really, I got thinking about that and was thinking about nostalgia, how we make a lot of decisions and we set a lot of goals because of nostalgia, like nostalgia around the weight that we were when we were in college. And we think, oh, if I could just get back to that weight, I would feel so much better because I was so much more active and so much more happy then. And you discount everything else that was going on in your life at that time, including how much younger you were. (laughs) Right. I've heard people say that so often. It's like, I want to weigh that because I felt good when I weighed that weight. And I think that is like a really common misattribution and attribution bias. Like, why else were you feeling good then? What else was working then that was fueling that positive self image and all of that. Maybe it wasn't just the number on the scale. Like how focused were you on that number when you were in college? Probably not very much. Like now it's taken on this outsized significance, largely due to attribution bias. Yeah. And another thing that I was thinking about might, uh, might pop up is like blowing up or dissolving a relationship there that you're in because the spark is gone. I mean, we've heard that kind of thing before where you end up blaming the specific person that you're in a relationship with instead of the sheer passing of time or the fluidness of love itself, just because we don't have that just in love feeling anymore. We have a nostalgia for that feeling, but we attribute it to the person instead of the circumstance. And 
well, passing of time, like I said. Yeah. I kind of want to say entropy, but that sounds really depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, I was just thinking in my own life, I still find myself longing to do some kind of long endurance race, like another Ironman Mm. triathlon or something, because I remember that special feeling I had with the first few times I crossed that finish line. But I know that's not healthy for me. I know it's not going to be something that's actually going to feel fulfilling anymore. But that nostalgic feeling, that remembered emotion, as Michelle Seeger says, is very strong. So if you don't take time to become aware of this, it can be uh, it can be really bad because all of these examples had much less to do with the weight that we were at in college or the partner we were with or the race that I was doing than many other factors. But attribution bias leads us to set some goals that don't necessarily lead to the outcome that we're looking for or, or the result we're striving for. Right. We're trying to recreate states in the belief that it will bring something else back into our lives as well. All right, one final (laughs) example here, because this actually comes from the researcher we talked about earlier, uh, Kareem Haggag. He is a Muslim, and he practices Ramadan. And if you don't know, during the entire month of Ramadan, Muslims fast every day from dawn to sunset. And Kareem said that he and some of his friends like to try out some new restaurants during Ramadan to make the breaking of the fast a little more celebratory and social. And as you can imagine, they are very hungry at sunset and they're ready for a good meal. Mm. Now, the problem creeps up when Kareem goes back to a particular restaurant after Ramadan's over because he remembers the food being absolutely delicious. And he says that he's almost always disappointed. Now, not only is he not as hungry for the meal as he had been during the during Ramadan, but that whole celebratory nature of breaking his fast with his friends is missing as well. Again, the food was inconsequential in comparison to many other more emotional, biological, and psychological factors that were going on when he was visiting those restaurants. Exactly. And this is why I no longer allow myself to order wine when tasting wines at a winery while on vacation. Oh. Because this went terribly, terribly wrong one time. (laughs) We were... Do tell. (laughs) You know how that is. You're on vacation, and if you're in an area where there are vineyards, that just seems like a fun thing to do. You go, you visit the vineyard. It's very beautiful. You taste the wines. And so we did this one time up in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Okay, not exactly Napa Valley, right? Right. Like we know Vermont isn't associated. It's not like the wine capital of the world, but it is a very beautiful place. And we are in the middle of a very enjoyable vacation. And so we're like, oh, well, let's go to the, the vineyard and, and we'll taste some wine. So there we are in the in the tasting room in the middle of this glorious vacation, just so relaxed, having such a good time. And and the, the sommelier was just charming and telling us all these mm-hmm. great stories. And he's pouring this wine. Now, this wine, Brock, you're going to laugh. But in the moment, I just lost track. It was made from rhubarb. It was rhubarb wine. Okay? Oh. Right? Mm. So we're tasting this. We're like, Wow. This is surprisingly good, you know? Yeah, so complex. I mean, this could just stand shoulder to shoulder with, you know, a beautiful Cabernet <laughs> from, from Napa Valley. Like, let's get some of this to take home. Let's In get fact, a whole case. <laughs> let's get a couple bottles to take to our friends who are sommeliers. They're going to be so impressed. So we get home <laughs> with this rhubarb wine and tried it back in our regular non-vacation lives and of course, it was terrible. We were like, what were we thinking? But 
perfect example of the attribution bias. You know, we just attributed the the general greatness of life while we were on vacation in Vermont to this wine, which I have to say did not deserve it. So, right, don't buy wine on vacation. <laughs> well, I think that was a, a great example of how you can get get fooled. I think probably there's a, a portion of people out there listening to this right now saying, well, that's all interesting and, and stuff. But And I, I love rhubarb wine, Monica. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe. But the thing is, is that we humans, well, we are judgment machines. And even in cases where we have a lot of information, our snap or our knee-jerk judgment often can overpower our logical decision-making brain. For example, since it's voting season in parts of Canada and I hear in the U.S. as well, you guys are coming up to, you guys are always voting, it seems. Well, we're just always getting ready to vote. But yes, we are now okay. actually, we are now actually voting. But yes, this election season started the day after the last election. So that's why it feels <laughs> that way. I know. Right. Okay. So let's look at voting bias then as, a, as an example here. Billions of dollars are spent on political campaigns and we conscientious voters anyway, we sit down and we scrutinize a candidate's platform, their past record, their experience, their qualifications, all of that stuff. But behavioral studies have shown that when we finally actually step into the voting booth, the candidate's physical appearance ultimately drives our decision. No. This means that our decision on who to vote for was likely made well before we studied the candidate's platforms. We're just either not willing to admit it, or we actually spent all that time researching the candidates, digging for information to support that original physical appearance bias. Right. But confirmation bias, right? We're going to look exactly. for facts to support what we already have decided we want to believe. Yeah. And there was a study published in 2005 that showed that students at Princeton University, they were shown the photos of candidates from the last three U.S. congressional races. And as each pair of candidates came up on the computer screen, the, the students were asked to judge who looked more competent. And on average, the students picked the actual winner of the election almost 70% of the time. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> Just by looking at pictures. <laughs> it seems like we could all save a whole lot of money on our election yes. season, right? Yeah. So even though snap judgments are kind of our thing as humans. I mean, making quick judgments is one of the ways that we feel safe in the world. And actually, it did keep us safe for, mm -hmm. well, millions of years. But remember that some assumptions we jump to are incorrect and can lead us away from our goals rather than towards them. So we really need to keep the bigger picture in mind to avoid knee-jerk reactions that stem from attribution bias. Right. So here are my takeaways from this really interesting concept. I feel like I'm going to now see attribution bias everywhere I look. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like learning a new word. Okay, number one, our response to an idea or our judgment of an experience may have as much to do with the context in which we encounter it than the thing itself. Right. Otherwise known as rhubarb wine. <laughs> Takeaway number two, Attribution bias may lead us to make decisions or choices that don't actually represent our true desires or values. They're misaligned. Mm -hmm. Number three, considering how the same experience would feel or would have felt in a different context might be one way of checking or correcting for 
attribution bias. It's sort of just a little mind game that we can play to see whether we can detect that at all. Mm -hmm. And finally, I'd like to suggest that it's going to be impossible to completely rid ourselves of attribution bias, but at least being aware that it exists can help us mitigate its power and allow us to make more accurate or more better considered judgments and decisions. And actually, there's probably a, a portion of being more aware of it that can actually make us more appreciative of the the things that we've done or the places we've been or the rhubarb wines that we've chosen. <laughs> if we right. can actually sit back and not just say, well, that rhubarb wine was amazing, but that vacation was amazing because of X, Y, and Z. Like that can make us just a little more, uh, little more appreciative. You're right. When I started telling that story, which I realized was a little bit long, my focus was how terrible the rhubarb wine was. But in telling you the story, it did remind me how awesome that vacation was. So I, I take your point. I think you're right. Maybe that's a good gratitude practice. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for once again joining us on the Change Academy podcast. Take it easy, everybody. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. And remember, you can find us at changeacademypodcast.com. That's changeacademypodcast.com.